Hi, humans. Welcome to Demystifying Science, where we ask new questions about old ideas. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're on the second episode of our four-part series on radio astronomy, solar physics, and the Big Bang. Last week, we introduced our guest, Dr. Pierre-Marie Robitaille, with a story of his role in the invention of the world's first ultra-high-field magnetic resonance imaging machine. In today's episode, we discuss how his familiarity in the domain of radio imaging gave him the ability to see a mistake that's buried at the heart of astrophysics. Blackbody radiation, that which is used to characterize stars, can only be produced by condensed matter arranged into a lattice. Astronomers, however, treat stars as condensed gas or plasma, a substance that by definition cannot have a lattice. According to Dr. Robitaille, this contradiction has resulted in a collection of increasingly complex rationalizations that are necessary to justify the existence of the sun's continuous spectrum. What follows is the story of Dr. Robitaille's realization that not all was settled in the academy and the enormous implications that his discovery has on everything from solar physics to the Big Bang. As always, if you like what we do, come join us on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can get early access to episodes, contribute to the editorial calendar, and see behind-the-scenes footage of everything we're working on in the House of Demystification. In the meantime, thanks for coming by, and thank you to Dr. Pierre-Marie Robitaille. Enjoy. When you read about black body radiation, they want a rigid enclosure. Well, the sun is not in a rigid, opaque enclosure, right? It's got convection currents, and there's energy in, in those convection currents, and that energy is not available for thermal emission. So the spectrum that we get from the sun is an apparent temperature. It's not a real temperature. It tells you something about the vibrational lattice on the sun. It doesn't tell you the real amount of energy that there is in the photosphere. So this is a major error in astronomy, and it's coming because of Kirchhoff's law. If they see a spectrum and it's a thermal spectrum, they assume it's a black body spectrum. Well, that's an error. You can't do that. You, you only get to say it's a black body spectrum if you have a known solid or, or the sample that you have is within a rigid enclosure. again, Dr. Pierre-Marie Robitaille. The last time we spoke, we covered a lot of ground about MRI and your role in creating ultra-high fields imaging to the degree of 8T MRI. And what we wanted to talk to you about more today is where you went after this enormous accomplishment. Because You'd gotten your laurels in MRI, but there were many challenges left ahead of you. Right. I mean, like I said last time, I think, you know, I thought I'd spend the rest of my life doing MRI. When I, when I assembled the AT, you, you, obviously you should do MRI. <laughs> I mean, you're sitting on the world's most powerful MRI scanner, so. But it was not so. Eh? But it didn't turn out that way. You it got didn't into turn other out stuff. That way, and in, in, in the end, it was a very good thing for me. So, anyhow, so you know, so last time we we did talk about some of the challenges. I, I think I tried to mention some of the challenges to Tesla MRI, and, and they were, but I didn't. I didn't. Maybe I I mentioned them, but I didn't quite go into detail. I mean, you know, I I mentioned last time um, Paul's book. Paul's preface to my book. So one second, <laughs> I set it over here. Let me go get it, okay? All right. I showed you this book last time, Ultra High Field MRI. 
And uh, the key thing about it is that people really thought that you could just never do this. You couldn't get images at these kinds of field strengths. And uh, Paul Lauderber, in the, in the foreword of the book, he, he wrote something interesting. He said, expert who had said and even written that frequencies above 10 megahertz would never be practical, but watched in amazement as scientists and engineers pushed the instrument performance to ever high, higher levels at ever-increasing magnetic field strengths, as this volume demonstrates. So, you know, the, and I mentioned it before in a talk that the person who had written that you'd never reach these fields was Paul Lauderber himself. So it was really... Who was the Nobel Prize laureate? Yeah. Paul Lauderber had said you'd never be able... He had written a paper that you'd never be able to image at, at very, very high fields. And, and there, were, there were several concerns. Like, the first was uh, RF penetration, that that the RF, that, that there would be a skin depth effect and you wouldn't be able to excite the center of the head. And uh, I remember walking in the hallway at NIH and, and a professor there telling me, Pierre, you'll, you, you're going to get a donut. You're, just, you're not going to get it. It's going to be black inside the head. You're not going to be able to get that deep. Hmm. Of course, that was completely false. I mean, today, as I mentioned last time, uh, you know, people in Germany now have, have whole body 32 transmit coils at seven tesla and they, they see the entire body deep inside the body so there's so rf penetration that was a real concern before the at people thought you just couldn't image that deep and then there was another concern that you'd have something called dielectric resonances that basically you'd, you'd set up a standing wave inside the person's head and that kind of was the opposite of rf penetration of the rf penetration problem in the rf penetration problem you wouldn't get any signal from the center of the head. In this one, you would actually get a standing wave inside the head. So you'd get an area of high intensity and then a null and then another area of high intensity. So, so you, but the head... And that would come from the, the waves bouncing around on the inside of the skull? Yeah, right. The... But, but the head only has a Q value. So if you look at what is the Q value, it's a, it's a quality factor. You know, when, when we measure resonant coils, we measure what is the, what is the quality factor of, of the coil, right? And that's, it's measured with a, a term called Q, and that's just equal to 2 pi, the stored energy, divided by the energy that's dissipated per cycle. So, so the Q of the head is actually very low. It's only 2, so you, you're never going to set up standing waves inside the head. And what's the Q of a good resonant coil? I, well, most MRI coils, the, the Qs are at least 100 okay. or, or higher. Mm -hmm. So the head's not that resonant. The head is, it doesn't sustain standing waves. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And, but, but before the AT was built, if you look at the literature, it, people really thought, oh, but my gosh, we're going to get, we have di dielectric resonances inside the head. And there were papers at 4T that described dielectric resonances and all that. And if they would have been careful, they would have seen that, as you move the head inside the resonator, uh, the position of the, of the brightness changed. And that means it had nothing to do with the head. It was the coupling between the head and the resonator that was important. So that means we, we didn't have dielectric resonances. And I showed that in a paper in JCAT uh, that, you know, depending on where you put the head inside the coil, the brightness will, will change. And, and that was important because that's something that now you can manipulate. 
And did you have a sense that the theoretical concerns were not well-founded when you were building the AT scanner? Or was... I, I think I think what happened was a lot of people... I, I don't know. It's something about human beings, you know. We're always quick to tell somebody that they can't do something. But mm. but actually, you know, scientists, I mean, it's there's many, many examples of science moving forward because somebody decided, well, look, I'm going to go forward no matter what you guys say. And, and that's what mm -hmm. happened with AT. So the first thing, I, again, RF penetration, then dielectric resonances. And the most important one we talked about last time was RF, uh, RF power requirements that NMR... MRI theory had built into it that the power has to move with the square of the field that it's going to take us tons and tons of power to excite the spins and I recounted last time about people being concerned that you'd fry the person's brain or if you're the first person to go into the scanner and then I went into the scanner I was the first person and there was a fear you know about is he going to fry his cerebellum or something you know putting his head inside the scanner so anyhow that that all proved to be to be not true, the the power behavior is much more complicated than people had predicted. So, and when you say fry your brain, you actually mean as a thermal process. As yeah, you'd heat it with RF. Now the now the thing about RF burns is it's quite interesting. You know, you don't feel RF burns easily. Mm. You, you get burned with RF and. People have gone into scanners and suffered very severe, and then, now this is in the early days of MR, it doesn't happen much nowadays, but I, I've not heard of a case, in, it doesn't happen anymore. But in the first days of MR, I mean, people got RF burns, and uh, they could be severe, you, you, you don't feel RF burns. And is that because they were using way more power than you'd need today? Uh, no, it was just because of the placement of the coils and mm. things not being shielded and like hot spots. And then you get hot spots and and you like, you know, my memory fades me, but you know, I remember reading about RF burns that were very serious, like toes burnt to great extent, and the person never felt it. That they got scanned, and then at the end they had a severe RF burn, and so wow. the, that has happened. And of course, there's been you know, there's been tragic fatalities in, in MRI scanners, you know, because it's rare, but it has happened. The child was killed, I remember, years ago because uh, they were being scanned and somebody brought a, an oxygen cylinder in the magnet room and the magnet just pulled in the oxygen cylinder into the magnet where the child was and it killed him. Wow, wow that's, but that's, that's, that's not even, Pardon? that's not direct, that's, that's not from the MRI scanner as a hotspot device. Right, that's, right. That's a completely different problem. So that's some final so, destination. Yeah, so this, so this, so we had, in MRI, you know, people had said, well, it, you send energy into the sample and it's going to be a lot of energy and we could, we could burn the patient. And, and I recounted last time that, you know, people thought, well, we could go to 10 Tesla, but it would take so much power, so much RF power to excite the spins with, you know, you'll never get an image. And before I built the AT, I was told, well, Pierre, the best you'll be able to do, you'll never get, you'll never get uh, certain sequences done, like M-depth and rare. These are sequences in MRI that use a lot of RF power to get the image. And people said, you'll never accomplish that at AT. And within the first, first year, we, we published papers with uh, David Norris, who came actually from Germany to the AT, and then 
he, he was an expert in M-Depth and Rare, and he ran M-Depth and Rare at AT, and we published papers together to demonstrate that, yeah, you could do even these, these sequences that everybody had said would be impossible. The other thing, before the AT was built, you know, power was, was such a high, it was a big consideration. So people said, well, you're only going to do a low mutation angle. So, so when you do imaging, you know, you're exciting the spins and you're displacing them from the z-axis, and you're going to just do a low angle Imaging. I remember again being at NIH and somebody telling me, well, Pierre, the best you'll get is a, a low image, a low mutation angle image at AT. You'll never get, you know, rare and M depth. So that, that person was completely wrong. Now, of course, the people who were wrong before AT, they still remain the experts after AT came along. So they, they never lost their status as experts, even though they were, they were not correct. They never, they never wrote any papers saying, well, we were wrong and we had told Dr. Robitaille it wouldn't work. None of these guys came clean, right? So, well, science seems suspiciously absent of such papers. Yeah, yeah, it's suspiciously upset. The naysayers all become, you know, yeah, they become... They're like, yeah, we thought that all along. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, they, they, they all thought it right all along. So now, so the, so the thing about RF power, it's, it's very important because I, I told you last time, you know, when we, when we brought the magnet to 4.7 Tesla, we got a 90. The amount of RF power to get a 90, it was 330 watts for a 4 millisecond sync pulse. And that's, that's just... Got, describing the shape of the pulse that we use to excite the sample. And at AT, it was like 100 watts. So it was much less. And, and so then that really threw us for a loop and what's going on with RF power. And that's, that's what started me thinking about the fact that MRI is a thermal process. It's more mm. complicated than just moving with the square of the field. So people had written that MRI power would move with the square of the field. And, and that wasn't right. The, the power was never moving with the square of the field. Now, it does, I mean, there has been papers where it shows up to four Tesla, it's moving with the square of the field. That has been demonstrated in the heart, for instance. So, but it's more complicated. It depends on the interaction of the coil and the sample and, and so on. So this square of the field thing is, and you know, some people are still strongly advocating it, but it's just it's just not right. And and there's a young professor, Tamer Ibrahim, he used to work at OSU and he showed that as a function of frequency in the head, the power does go down with the FTTD calculation. So So I wanted to just pause real quick and, and mention that this happens quite often in engineering and science, that you have a very nice model that works across a number of experiments. And then all of a sudden you reach what we call like the boundary conditions of that model where it no longer fits as nicely. And there's a really good uh, instance of this. I, I think you mentioned it maybe last time briefly, which is the ultraviolet catastrophe. Right, right. So, so, this, so we had kind of built in to MR theory had built in, you know, that the power would move with the square of the frequency. And that is exactly analogous to the ultraviolet catastrophe. We had built that into MR theory. So, so anyhow, I started thinking about MRI as a thermal process because, you know, of course, we're sending RF energy, we're sending energy into the sample, and this causes heating. And that's actually regulated by the FDA. So, so the, the, there's certain limits of how much you can heat a sample. And uh, anyhow, so, so I started thinking about MRI as a thermal process and, and the fact that Block had mentioned long ago that 
the T1 relaxation constant was actually called the thermal relaxation constant. And this is one of the important relaxation constants in NMR. So, Do you know what? Do you have any sense of why he called it a thermal constant at the time? Because he understood it was a thermal process that, that the power that, of the spin, the spin, the energy contained in the spin system is going to be dissipated into the lattice. Mm. So yeah, real quick. So a thermal process is something that involves the composite structure, not just the individual atoms. Is that what we're trying to say, mean here by right. thermal? Like, like for instance, you, so in a gas... You don't have a lattice, so you, you a gas doesn't polarize. I mean, if you put a gas in a in a mag, in a magnetic field like helium three, well, you can't get an image just by putting helium three in a magnet. Even though it has spin one half, it doesn't give you an image. Why? Because it it can't be polarized. It doesn't have a lattice. So mm. how do you do helium three imaging? Like we do do MRI people do do helium three imaging of the lungs, for instance. But they don't, the helium doesn't get polarized in the magnet. What happens is the, the scientists polarize the helium uh, using lasers, I believe, in physics laboratories, and then bring the helium to the MRI magnet room and then release it into the patient. It's already polarized. Now, if you take hydrogen and, and in the context of a lattice, like, like water, and, it, and it's in a lattice, right now we have a liquid or liquids and solids, they contain lattices. So because they have a lattice, they can be polarized. So they, the lattice is polarizing the spin. They, it can, once you put it in a magnetic field, you can build up the polarization because you have a lattice field. And so... And so the whole basis of your work, like just to review for people, is that you, you have this lattice that all of these atoms want to return to this sort of ground state. They really want to relax into this it's structured a configuration. It's, a, it's and, a little bit more... So the spin system is one thing. We're looking at the nucleus. And then we have the vibrational lattice. And there's an interaction. There's coupling of that energy from the spin system into the vibrational lattice. Got it. Okay, so... So when you have a solid or a liquid, let's say I put you into the MRI scanner at the speed of light, okay? You came into the MRI room and we were really in a hurry to get our exam done and we just threw you in there. We threw you in the magnet room at the speed of light and in the magnet at the speed of light and then I pulse. The question is, do I get an, a signal? And the answer is no, you won't because what happened is you didn't, have, you didn't leave time for the spin system to become polarized. So, mm -hmm. so the, when you put the sample in the magnet, you have to give time for that polarization to take place. And that's dependent on the T1, the T1 relaxation time, this, the thermal relaxation constant of block. So there's big differences between gases and liquids and solids. Now, we knew this in MRI. Now, if you talk to the astronomers, they really think the gases, liquids, and solids, they're all the same. They're all going to behave thermally the same way, which is mm -hmm. completely false. So, mm -hmm. so this is one of the things that got me to start thinking about this, the sun, you know, is it a gas or not? And then this is a little complicated, but it, it involves a thermal process in a gas. That a gas cannot produce a thermal spectrum like a, like a solid or a liquid can. So this is a gas, you know, just so we're, we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but a gas emits in bands. So if you look at a gas like, uh, you know, you look at neon lights 
and you'll see different gases and they, they have different colors, right? So I think like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, I think hydrogen is pretty much red and, and you play with different gases, you'll get different colors, like a copper might give you a green and so on, okay? Yep. So, so gases emit in speci at specific frequency bands and they could be several bands in one gas, there could be many bands, but it's not continuous. But in a solid, you'll get a continuous emission. A solid has a lot Lots of different frequencies. Of many frequencies in a solid because you have a lattice in a solid. But in a gas, it emits in bands. And every chemist knows this. Every chemist who, who's taken spectroscopy knows this. But, but again, now going back, jumping a little bit to astronomy, the astronomers think, well, the sun is a gas, is a gaseous plasma, and it can emit a continuous spectrum. And this is just counter to everything we know in the physical sciences. So even though the astronomers are saying it's true, that doesn't take place. You cannot get continuous emission in the gas or a plasma. It doesn't happen. This idea of a misinterpretation of the solar structure is the heart of your objection to physics. Or to well, I don't have objections to physics. I, I, I have objections to current ideas in astronomy, that's for sure. There we go. That's and a much better way of so, putting it. So I think I had, a, I had a very good friend in physics. I, I never name him, but I will today. He's deceased, John Wilkins. He was a very eminent uh, professor. He was a distinguished professor at Ohio State, and he had come from Cornell with Ken Wilson. And John and I became very close friends over the years. And, uh, you know... I think John realized that he used to tell me, he says, yeah, the astronomers are supposed to follow the rules of physics, except they don't. So, so he understood that there were problems and, and tried to encourage me to continue. Don't give up. And I, and I didn't. So, so anyhow, so getting to this thermal question, you know, that way back the T1 was called the thermal uh, relaxation constant. It's also called... The, the spin lattice relaxation. Now, there was another thing that was interesting about NMR, and we talked about this briefly last time, and that is that Ed Purcell, so Block won the Nobel Prize for NMR, and he shared it with Ed Purcell, and I mentioned last time, you know, people try to tell me, well, Pierre, what, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're not an astronomer, and it frankly doesn't matter. Science doesn't work that way. You know, when you do an MR, you, you get trained as a spectroscopist, just like the astronomers do. They're studying spectra. They're, they're studying stellar spectra. And, uh, and, but we, we study spectra in the laboratory. Okay, these, these are sister, you know, we have different, we're studying different problems with the same technique. So to tell a spectroscopist, a person that's trained in spectroscopy that, that you don't have the training to look at astrophysics is not reasonable. It, it, the, and that's a relatively modern conception that scientists would only study one little corner of the universe. It seems yeah. like historically, many scientists had their hands in all sorts of things. Right. They're, um, they're Robert sure. Hooke comes to mind. Uh, I, I don't know. So many different pioneers were, were working all over the place. Right. But it seems like you actually trace the emergence of this credentialism to right around Kirchhoff's time. Is that correct? Right. So we're going to go we're going to go to Kirchhoff. Uh, because it's quite important because Kirchhoff was the, he was one of the fathers of spectroscopy, you know. So he, him and Bunsen, uh, if you guys took freshman chemistry, you remember the Bunsen burner, that's named after mm -hmm. Bunsen. And Bunsen and Kirchhoff worked together on the identification of chemical elements using their emission. So 
or their absorption. So he, he basically they took they took elements and they put them in the flame. And actually, we still still do this today. In in uh, I think it's in analytical chemistry or quantitative analysis. One of these two courses that I took a long time ago. <laughs> you take you take the element, you you put it in a in a flame, and then you'll see the emission. You know, you'll get a green line, for instance, for for copper. And so so ben, Bunsen and Kirchhoff in the 1850s, they studied different elements under the flame and then they were able to identify the elements because pure elements will give you very distinct emission lines in the flame. So that was the beginning of spectroscopy. Kind now, of similar to a gas, would you say? Yeah, like a gas. In that case, it was a gas. It vaporized, then you see the line emission of the free atom. So, so now for, for the stars, in, uh, in about, uh, I think it was in 1814, that Fraunhofer, uh, you know, he, he took the spectrum of the, of the sun and he, and he saw that there was absorption lines on the stars, on the sun, and uh, he discovered the Fraunhofer spectrum. But he didn't know what the lines were. And it was Kirchhoff in 1859 that uh, actually showed that the lines were matched exactly the elements on Earth. So then he was able to say, oh, well, on, in the sun, there's these major lines. There's calcium in the sun, and there's, there's sodium, and, and there's hydrogen. We can see these emission lines. So we, we, we could see the absorption lines. Sorry, in that case, they were an absorption. And so Kirchhoff was able to identify the elements in 1859. So he's considered one of the fathers of spectroscopy. Now, the interesting thing about... So what I'm saying about spectroscopy, you know, the, the astronomers... If you take a, an advanced course in spectroscopy, whether you take it in physics or in chemistry, you're going to learn the same material. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I, I used to have physics graduate students come and take my NMR courses, you know, because, of course, these are advanced courses in, you know, in the theory of MRI and, and NMR, and, and so they would come and take the courses. So, and likewise, so I had students in chemical physics, and they, and they, or in physics, and they, they'd come in and take courses to understand, okay, well, this is a spectroscopic technique, and NMR is, and MRI is one of the most complicated spectroscopic techniques. So to tell an NMR scientist that you can't understand the spectroscopy of an astronomer is not reasonable at all. It just doesn't fly. And, and the reason that it happens, of course, the fields have become separated. You know, most MRI spectro People who do spectroscopy in, in medicine or in, uh, in chemistry, I mean, they got their own eggs in their own baskets. I mean, they don't start looking at astronomy, right? It's not because they can't. It's just that they have their own problems, right? And so they focus on their problems. But that doesn't mean they don't have the training to question what's going on in astronomy. But the astronomers want to make everybody believe, well, they, they, they want everybody to, to, to be wowed by what they do in astronomy, but they cannot have anyone criticize what they've done. And that's not right. I mean, if, if you guys want to bring your science to the populace, you want to bring science to, to, to get people excited about science, that's great. But then you're also subject to review. I mean, some of us scientists have the time to look at it, and we decided to look at it. And now you're subject to, okay, wait a minute, this is not working here. So now, of course, I'm an outsider. And there's a thing in science about paradigm shifts 
Kuhn wrote a book about this, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I mean, how does a paradigm shift occur, right? It occurs because, usually it occurs because an, an outsider looks at your field and says, well, I, I see it a different way. And he, he, I, he has no stake in the system, so I have no stake in their system, right? I wasn't trained it's not by even not, It's not even a lack of stake in the system as much as it is maybe even the lack of generational, I don't want to say dogma, but the passage of knowledge from generation to generation. Right. When I you mean, show I'm up not... to a discipline, you get handed all of these ideas that are foundational to the discipline. Right. And you're taught that these ideas are golden. They've been proved, they've been vetted, they are the ideas. Right. But when you come in and from the outside... it's not like you have a lot of time, right, during grad school to sit around reading papers from the 1900s and reproving the foundational laws. We're right. re-examining them, yeah. But when you're, so, when you're of interest from the outside, you have that opportunity. And I think that that's where that seed comes from and a body of knowledge that is distinct. Yeah, I was very fortunate because when I left MRI, I was just able to just read. I was a mm. tenured professor and I spent years just reading. So I went back and I, I read all the classic papers by Kirchhoff, all the classic papers on spectroscopy, all the classic papers on black body radiation. I mean, I spent years of my life reading these classic papers that had formed the field, the, the field of astronomy. So, and you had to do translations on some of those, from what I understand. Yeah, some of them I translated, as you saw in the, well, I, I, my, the, the ones that were in French, there were some important articles. I was very fortunate that I was a, a native French speaker because so many key papers in spectroscopy and physics were in French, and uh, I was able to read them. And of course, Kirchhoff wrote in English, and then uh, I, I, in German, and so those had to be translated by others, so I relied on translations that already existed because his work was quite important. But for instance, Father Secchi, who is one of the fathers of, of uh, uh, solar astrophysics, I mean, observational astrophysics, I mean, if you look at his papers on the sun, his pictures of sunspots, which he did in the 1870s, they're just beautiful. It's unbelievable that he, he was such a good observational scientist. And uh, so Father Secchi was in Rome, and uh, he wrote uh, in Italian, and I was able to get, he had two very, he had a big argument with Kirchhoff, and the, the classic papers were, were published in Italian, so I, I actually got a professor at Princeton and a student here at OSU to get together and translate these papers uh, that, that uh, she wrote uh, mm. relative to Kirchhoff. And she was actually upset that Kirchhoff was getting involved in solar physics, and basically, sometimes he was telling him to, to stay in his garden, <laughs> but, but uh -huh. Kirchhoff never did. And he was the father of solar spectroscopy. I mean, the, nobody could say, so, so, so Secchi had this almost the same attitude that, that modern scientists have. Well, you're not a solar physicist, so you can't look at the sun. And Secchi told that to Kirchhoff in, in the 1870s, and it's translated in that special issue uh, that I did on is a sun a gas or a, or a liquid, but so all the way back, you know, there was there was this thing about uh, keep your keep yourself in your garden, and and science doesn't work that way, you know. It's 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 humanity that divided science into disciplines because it makes it manageable for us to learn, you know, 
learn science. But once you're a PhD and you're trained in physical sciences, you know, it's not that hard to go learn another physical science. I mean, if you're a spectroscopist, you know, learning what has happened in solar physics is, is actually relatively easy. And what I did was once I got interested in the sun, I actually went and audited courses at OSU, the graduate level uh, course in, in uh, solar structure with Marc Pinsano, which Marc was, uh, he's an international authority in solar physics. I mean, he worked with John Bacall at Yale and, and he's, if you read the classic papers on the standard model of the sun, uh, Marc was, he's, he's one of the authors with John Bacall, which is, so, you know, I took his course and I understand what Mark teaches. Now, interestingly, I, when I took the course, I just audited. So Mac was very nice. He just let me sit in his class and I just listened and really took notes. And because I was a faculty member, I wasn't taking it for a grade, but I still could learn everything that he taught and I still have my notes today. And, and I have to say, Dr. Pinsano is a phenomenal scientist. I mean, he starts a lecture and he writes down all the equations for the gaseous equations of state for the sun and he is fantastic at it and there's no question about that. But at the end of the course, he had asked me, well, did I change your mind about the sun? And I said, no, Mark, you didn't because you, you started your course by telling us the sun is a gas, but you never told us why it was a gas. You just assumed it was a gas and then you went into the equations of state. And that's the problem. You have to set the phase first and then go into the mathematics. So. So for physics, once I changed the phase of the sun, unfortunately, all that mathematics, which they're so proud of, it just collapses. And so this is a real problem. What is the phase of the sun? Is it a gas or it's not a gas? And we'll, we'll, we'll cover that later. But, I, but getting back to the, to the similarities, you know, between NMR and, and MRI and, and radio astronomy, for instance, you know, in magnetic resonance imaging, you know, we, we have our... We have RF antennas, and they're coupled to preamplifiers and radiometers, and then we display our results in spectra and images, right? Well, in the, like, for studying the, the microwave background, it's the same thing. You're, you're dealing with, at low frequency, you have RF antennas, and they're coupled to preamplifiers and radiometers. Of course, at high frequencies, they use bolometers. But, but most scientists who developed MRI were first trained as spectroscopists, and, and then they used nuclear magnetic resonance, and then they built that field of nuclear magnetic resonance and it's one of the most complex spectroscopic methods. So you can't tell an MRI scientist that you can't do spectroscopy. That's like telling Ed Purcell that you can't discover the 21 centimeter line because you discovered NMR so you know, you're not allowed to go look at astronomy. I mean all you had to do is build an antenna and point it at the sky and with the techniques that he knew he was able to understand and see the 21 centimeter line. So that's why I talk about Ed Purcell a lot because in, in that person, in Ed Purcell's own being, you see that link between NMR, MRI, and radio astronomy. So the, the, the other radio astronomers are barking up the wrong tree. They cannot tell an MRI person that you're not qualified to look at radio astronomy. Yes, I am. And uh, they don't like what I have to say, but... Uh, well, that I'm might be more of the basis of the objection, right? Pardon? Well, that's the basis of the objection. It's not necessarily that someone from a different discipline can't come and participate in the discipline the way that the rules are laid out. It's that you show up from a different discipline and you start knocking things over and start telling people 
Right. That I, perhaps I don't, they have the wrong ideas. I don't follow the rules, right? So Yeah, exactly. So one of the things I did was, of course, I, you know, I, I took out, once I discovered that oh, there's something wrong in astronomy and the sun is, is not a gas, I took out a full-page ad in the New York Times and people... You know, and it cost it cost a hundred thousand dollars at the time. But you say was, ad. Hold on, you say ad, and when I've heard you say ad before, I imagine a picture that has a picture of the sun, oh, yeah. and underneath so, it says so, the sun so, is not gas. But we're talking we're talking a full scientific article in the New York Times. Yeah, so taken here, out here, as an ad. Here's the New York Times. Do you see it? So yep. this is this is the New York Times from that date, March seventeenth, two thousand and two. And if you go to page 810, which I'll do here for you. So now, so if you go to page 810, you'll see this ad, the collapse of the Big Bang and the gaseous sun, okay? And then it's a full page. Yeah. You basically wouldn't even know it's an ad if you didn't look at the fine print. Yeah, it's such a fine print. And, and uh, so... Now, did you try to publish, did you attempt to publish it? Never in, did. So, so what happened, and this is what people didn't understand, what is he doing? Why is he doing it this way? And that's, you know, and they thought, well, Robitaille is just off his rocker. I mean, he, nobody takes out an ad in the New York Times. So, mm -hmm. so what happened was once I decided there's something wrong in astronomy, uh, so I, did, I went and saw a friend of mine who lived uh, in California, and uh, he was more of an acquaintance, but he was, I wouldn't put him in the, the real friend category, but he was somebody I knew well. And, uh, and he had done his PhD with a Nobel Prize winner. So I went to California and I, and I talked to him and we spent quite a long time in Huntington Gardens talking. And I told him the, the sun is condensed matter, it's a liquid. And he said, well, Pierre, you'll never say it in the scientific literature. Never. You, nobody will allow me to say that. And I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, you can take out an ad in the New York Times. I said, you got to be kidding. I you want me to take out an ad in the New York Times? He says, oh, no, 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 Pierre. It's okay. You should really, it's been done before. I mean, so what matters? I think Hubble did that originally. Was it Hubble? Well, he published in the New York Times. I don't know if he did an ad. And, 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 and the person I was talking to, which he, he asked not to be named. And I, I hope that someday he finally says, hey, I'm the one that told Pierre to take the ad in the Times. But out of respect for him, I haven't named him. And sometimes I feel like, okay, I should name him. But, you know, he didn't want to be named. And I don't mm -hmm. think it makes any difference to the story. He told me to take the ad in the New York Times. And I did. And um, he, he told me at the time, well, Calvin, who is the father of photosynthesis, he had taken, he had first published it in the Times. I didn't mm -hmm. know that. And I, since that time, I had been trying to find, well, where is it that Calvin said this exactly? And so the story with Kelvin is, you know, there were many reactions in the photosynthesis. And he was missing a key reaction. And he got a paper to review, apparently. And in that review, there was this reaction. Now, it had nothing to do, I think, with photosynthesis. But he, it made him think about photosynthesis. And then he had the full set of reactions for photosynthesis. So then he published in the Times because he didn't want to be scooped. Now, for me, it wasn't a question of not being scooped. It was a question of, I'm not going to argue with people for years and years to try to get this idea out. I'm just going to say it, and if people want to argue, they, they can. They can. They have their lifetime worth. They can argue all they want, but I'm going to say it, and it is not going to be prevented from saying. So it. And so, what happened after you published this? Well, that was actually quite interesting. So I published it. 
on March 17, 2002. And when I did, you know, I published it. Now, my friend John, which I told you about, John Wilkins, he was, uh, anybody who knows John knows that every morning John started his day by reading the New York Times. <laughs> now, I never told him I was going to take out an ad in the Times. He didn't know. <laughs> Even though I saw him almost daily, sometimes I, I saw John, we talked hundreds of times he and he'd come over to my house for christmas and thanksgiving so we, that must have been a hard secret to keep yeah 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 so what happened was i took i took out the ad and i published it on march 17th and that was the opening of the national physics meeting in the united states so they were meeting in indianapolis and john told me that the whole physics society everybody was trying to find the new york times article and of course i had put a copy of the article online and then People went online and the, the editors of different journals would go to John and say, well, John, he, he never sent us a paper. <laughs> and I never did because I didn't want to go down that route. Mm -hmm. I had been advised, put it in the Times, and I decided I went to my wife and it was basically all the money we had. And, you know, we were blessed to have it, of course. And, and she agreed that I can say it in the New York Times. And I did. Wow. And, uh, it was a very interesting reaction because, you know, as the day went forward, you know, you could see people logging into my website and it was just an avalanche of thousands and thousands. Of, I mean, there are two million people that read the Sunday New York Times. This was a Sunday issue. And worldwide, there's two million people and it's distributed around the world. So, you know, <laughs> so what happened was... You know, as the day went, you know, you saw people logging in from England and then Europe. And, you know, it was like that around the planet. And then again, the second day. And so people, they didn't like my method and they thought I was, he must be insane to do something like this. But I was following the advice of somebody who had been trained by a Nobel Prize winner. So I, I'm, I've got a good excuse. And so I, I did put it in the Times. And I don't regret it. I mean, one of the things is... It, there are certain things in life that cannot be bought. You know, you, you, I'm, I'm 61 now, and you don't get to repeat your life. You know, if you don't take the chance when you needed to take it, it doesn't come again. You know, life moves on. So you have to take the chance. You have to decide how important is this for you. And, and yeah, for me, you it was only get one red. And, and for me, it was important enough. So I, I don't have regrets. You know, maybe today that money would have grown into a million dollars for me. But so what? What was it going to do when I die? Right? Money doesn't give you happiness. So Can't take I, it with you. So I did. I did put it at the times, and then uh, you know. What do you I, think would have happened, I, by the way, if if you would have sent this off to Nature or Science? They would have rejected it. Yeah. Just outright. You don't think they would have even? No, no, no. They would have touched just rejected it. it. And, and so what happened is after that, when I go to the physics meeting, I remember one time I went to the me physics meeting and you have to register. You go up to the registration table and I said, well, I'm Dr. Robitaille from Ohio State. And the person on the other side of the table goes, you're the New York Times guy. And I said, yeah, I am. So I, I became, they didn't escort you out of the building at that point? <laughs> so I became known, you know, for better, for worse, people... It had the name recognition, Pierre-Marie Robitaille, I have an unusual name, and, and not only the idea became known, but, you know, they knew that, okay, this guy, maybe he, they, they didn't think well of me, but they knew that I existed. And, of course, you're going to have reactions at first. People aren't going to be happy, but it doesn't matter. So I took it out, and there was another thing I did, is be, before the New York Times ad, 
because of the AT, the first thing I did in physics, now I wasn't a member of the American Physical Society, but John and people who know physics know who John Wilkins is. When John told me, Pierre, you really should join the American Physical Society. And he said, then you can become a life member. So I, I can't remember what it costs at the time, but I decided, okay, I'll become a life member. And what does this give me? Well, it gave me the opportunity to send abstracts to the American Physical Society. And so I asked John, I said, well, so there's two, rule, there's, there's two rules in science. You have to say it, and people must know you did it. So when you publish in the New York Times, you said it, and people know you said it. There's no question about it. You said it. And the other thing is, abstracts count. So if you talk to young hmm. students, they suppose it's just an abstract. It doesn't matter. No, that's not how science works. Science, an abstract can be a full description of an idea. So hmm. abstracts count. So John said, and they're published yeah. right away. Is the idea they stick them in the bulletin for the annual meeting or something? That's right. They stick them in the bulletin of the American Physical Society. And so what happened was, I, John told me, he says, Pierre, just go ahead and send an abstract. So I still have John's handwriting on my very first abstract that I sent to the APS, which was NMR and the Age of the Universe. <laughs> so. That was sent after the AT was built. Now, of course, and I said, we will never measure the age of the universe uh, because of the AT thing. So, and John said, so I didn't know how to submit an abstract. So John made just minor English corrections. And so people who know hand, John's handwriting would know that on that page, that is John's handwriting that he corrected. And then he mailed it from his university computer because I didn't know how to submit an abstract to the APS. So that's and what you what you mean there is again just the idea that the model can't extend beyond its boundary conditions, right? You won't be able to actually apply that model to the something that's so so now we get into what the what the problem is a little bit and, and we'll I think we'll cover this in 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 future discussions maybe because it's it's a, it's a, maybe a little complicated, but, sure. but uh, basically I'm just telling you a, bit, a little bit about the history of there were consequences to MRI and, and one of the consequences were, you know, I took out the ad in the New York Times, I got interested in thermal processes and then started protesting what was going on in some of the, in, in astrophysics. And um, so getting back to MRI, you know, it was a wonderful thing for me, and uh, it gave me certain things in life that you never expect that you'll you'll be so privileged to get. And so scientists, you know, we're, we're very privileged. I mean, people don't really realize, people who are not doing science, they don't realize how privileged it is to be a, to have been a professor or, or to be engaged in, in, in science. You know, you get to travel to meetings all over the world. I never liked traveling much, but... Uh, you, you do get to travel and you, you see many places in the world. I, I was invited to go uh, to the Astro Space Center in Moscow uh, by, by the associate director, uh, uh, Vladimir Kurt, and, uh, you know, to talk about astronomy. I mean, these things don't happen unless you, you're a scientist and, and you, you have all these opportunities. But one of the nicest opportunities I had is after I built the AT, I got to meet John Glenn. And so that was, it was just a privilege. Uh, it was a one-on-one -on -one meeting with John Glenn in the Senate office. And his wife, actually his wife Annie was there. So 
but I consider them one. <laughs> and, and so, and of course, if you read John Glenn's life a little bit, if you know a bit about John Glenn and how much he defended Annie and so on, you know, it was just a privilege to get to meet both of them. And I was, I think I was with him for about a half an hour and you walked into John Glenn's office and, you know, it was like walking into a, a museum of prize pieces of what's going on at NASA, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, anyhow, it was just a wonderful thing to go and, and, and see John Glenn. And he was concerned about dizziness because, you know, when the astronauts go up in space, you know, they can become dizzy. And when you put your head in the MRI magnet, in high magnetic fields, you know, you have your semicircular canal in your ear and there's ions there. And if you move your head rapidly in the magnetic field, you could really become dizzy at these very high fields. Hmm. So you have to be careful as you approach the edge of the magnet and you're, 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 you're getting close to the magnet, don't move too quickly because you can get, get dizzy. So we, we try to move our, the patients in and out of the magnet slowly because the fields are so high and you don't want to cause this... Uh, this flow in, uh, of ions in the semicircular canals so that the people become dizzy. And the other thing that you get in ultra high field magnets is you can get a metallic taste in your mouth. Hmm. And, uh, Yikes. And is that from depolarization I, of we, taste I don't buds? know why it is. I don't know that it's well understood, but you can get a metallic taste. Now, of course, people shouldn't be too concerned about Go, having an MRI exam, I, I went in for hundreds of hours. I mean, one time we were working on a sequence, Amir and I, and I talked about Amir in the in the previous uh, in the previous conversation. He was your postdoc, and, and yeah, and well, he was a research scientist by then. He had been promoted, but we worked all night together, just the two of us. So he needed a sample. So I went in the magnet. I went in for the whole night. I was I was there the like whole night. Yeah, from ten at night till probably like six in the morning, <laughs> working on a sequence, and and it was on the entire time. Well, the, we were testing different things, and I see. and just as we're getting ready to do the image, the power of the university <laughs> dropped out. <laughs> so it was anyhow. So don't ever be concerned about you know going into a magnet. It's one of the safest places in the world. We, we you don't have RF burns really, and and you, you it's such a safe modality. And uh, so anyhow, I went in many 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 hours to for different things, not only for imaging, but also because I'm working in it. Right, I'm I'm working near it. I was working near it. So so anyhow, don't don't ever be concerned about those things. So I did have the meeting with John Glenn. The other thing that I had that was super a treat that you can't, it's hard to conceive that, you know, because I grew up in Northern Ontario, you know, and I never expected to become a professor at a Big Ten institution. So the other thing that happened to me is I was invited to the National Prayer Breakfast by the White House. And this is a, this is a hard invitation to get, apparently. And uh, you at this at the National Prayer Breakfast, you actually pray for the President of the United States. And there's guest speakers. And the year that I went, uh, the guest speaker was Yasser Arafat hmm. and Yitzhak Rabin's wife. Hmm. And so Rabin had died, right? And uh, was dead. And, uh, you know, so the, the Rabin and Arafat, of course, were enemies. And then you saw 
Mrs. Rabin and Arafat, uh, Yasser Arafat speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast. But the other thing that was interesting about that prayer breakfast was that was the year that President Clinton was uh, being impeached. And so he had, he of course came to address the audience. And so you, you, you could just see that things weighed on the president. And, he could uh, really use the prayers, it seems like. He could really use the prayers. And uh, anyhow, so there, there are things that I, that I was blessed in my life because I became a scientist. You know, it has hardships, but it also has, it can have great blessings. And, and, I, and I had those blessings. And so, it seems like the biggest blessings are this bigger community that you keep speaking about, all of the different opportunities you have to collaborate and learn from other scientists and the discussions you had with people who are perhaps even outside of your field. Right. I mean, people, you know, I, I mean, I was, I was fortunate to exchange emails with people, all kinds of people. And some people sometimes, you know, experts in thermal imaging would, would argue with me. And then we'd exchange emails. I tried to stay polite. I don't know if history will prove that I, I was always polite, but I did, I did try. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so there were, I had exchange, I have exchange of emails with people most unexpected sometimes, you know, I mean, uh, Russian scientists that contacted me and, uh, like the, the Astro Space Center, for instance, uh, you know, after I said the, mi the microwave, but the other thing I said, in addition to the sun, is I, I said the microwave background is not coming from the universe. And people think, oh my gosh, how can he say such a thing? And uh, if, if they take the time to look at the science, they'll understand why. And we will discuss that in a later podcast. But after I said that, that's when I was invited to the Astro Space Center by Vladimir Kurt. And <laughs> so the Astro Space Center is in Moscow, and it's, it's the... It's the, the Russian equivalent of our NASA. Now, it's still a highly secure area. So when you, I had a Russian friend, he told me, he said, Pierre, do not approach that center without having a, a letter with the seal of the Institute on the letter because you, will get a, you can get arrested in Russia if you go too close to that place. So I made sure I, I met the associate director. We met a couple blocks away. I said, we should meet a couple blocks away, bring the invitation letter, and he had it with the seal, and then we walked into the Astro Space Center. And I got to meet Kompanitz there, which uh, was one of the great solar physicists of, this, of, of Russia. And, uh, and uh, also, I got to talk to Dr. Kurt, of course, on the microwave background. And he just won uh, an important uh, medal in, in Russia for science. Vladimir Kurt, I think just last year, uh, was awarded like one of their highest prizes for science. And so when I was there... Uh, you know, I got to spend time with him, and I even got to go to his home, and and uh, and he introduced me to the director of the center. And what he did, he goes, he, he he says, now by the way, the interesting thing about these guys is they were old enough that they were elderly, and they had both been involved with the the formation of Sputnik. So that's kind of interesting, you know. You meet somebody that actually, when he was a young man, had been involved with Sputnik. So that was that was kind of a blast but were they the, oh i was going to say were they more amenable to your ideas than people that you've met in the united states or well i think most scientists i mean i think scientists okay what you see on the internet and what people actually are are two different things right you know a lot so, of scientists on the internet real scientists are busy 
Yeah, real scientists are busy, and, and real scientists, they'll consider the question, right? They, they, they don't have to jump up and down and attack people or be impolite or whatever. It's not necessary. If, 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 if I'm right, I'll be right, and if I'm wrong, I'll be proven wrong. But you don't attack the person, right? Just think about the idea, and, and it'll, it'll all work out. One way or the other, in the end, Dr. Robitaille is either right or he's wrong, right? And but the Russians had I'll, that idea. I, I advise you to bet on the fact that I will be proven right. <laughs> so, so the Russians, they were actually quite nice. And, and uh, Vladimir, when he introduced me to the director, so he was the associate director of the institute. And when he introduced me to the director, he said, well, this is Dr. Robitaille, and he's the one that believes that the microwave background, the monopole, the microwave background comes from the earth. <laughs> and the, the director, he, he just shook his head, looked down on, on the ground like this. He just shook his head and he goes, if, if Appropriate he's right, Russian response. he goes, if, it's, if he's right, it's terrible for astrophysics. So, yeah. so they... Well, they, it's kind of like you're looking at like this billion dollar skyscraper and you're like, the foundation's broken. Yeah. You're going to have to replace the, the whole thing. And the thing. foundation is Kirchhoff's law. We'll eventually get there. But that, that is a fatal thing in astronomy. And I urge physicists to start thinking about it because there's a real problem in Kirchhoff's law. And so, so Kirchhoff's law of thermal emission. Now, for, for engineers or electrical engineers, there's no problem with the laws of current and laws of voltage. That's okay. I'm talking about the law of thermal emission. So sometimes people get confused about that. But uh, anyhow, so when I, get, when I went to Russia, I also got to go to uh, Pushino, which was, it was a city that during Soviet times, you know, a bunch, that's where they housed a lot of scientists. They, they, they kind of had made a science city. And then uh, scientists and their families lived there and their laboratories were there. And it was kind of out of, it's south, I think it's south of Moscow. I, I, I was taken there, but I don't remember exactly where it's located. But, but radio astronomy is, there's a big radio astronomy lab in Pashino. And there, the Russians are very polite. And, I, and believe it or not, they listened to a two-hour lecture from me on uh, the sun and the microwave background. And they were extremely polite, and, and just, they just listened. So, so, you know, that's, that's the thing about scientists. Did you, you know? get a lot of pushback, or...? No, they were they just listened and considered. So most scientists, you know, they'll if somebody tells me something, I'm not it's not about them. I, I have to think about the idea first, right? And there's a reactionary thing like, oh, Kirchhoff cannot be wrong, so Robotide must be must be incorrect, right? There can't be a problem with Kirchhoff's law. Who is this guy? And of course, the difference between myself and them is I read the papers. I mean, they take the law for granted because they were taught the law in modern physics and sophomore physics class. And for me, when I, I remember when I first learned about black body radiation as an undergraduate, uh, you know, I just like, I just don't get this thing. This is something's not right here. And, mm. and then I forgot about it, you know. It's only 20 years later that it became important again. So, but most people, when they, when they first learn about Kirchhoff's Law, it, well, it's an interesting thing about physicists. What didn't make sense to you? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, this independence of the nature of the walls and 
what is producing the radiation. So, so let's just introduce Kirchhoff's law yeah, for the I, listeners. I think that's that's a good idea now. So, so Kirchhoff's law. No, so before we go to Kirchhoff's law, we'll go to Stewart's because because people confuse Stewart's law with Kirchhoff. So, so let's say you have an object and it's it's sitting. Uh, at equilibrium, and so you have an object, and its temperature isn't changing. It's, let's say it's isolated in space. Okay, so you have this object, and so Stewart's law says that the amount of radiation that's absorbed will be equivalent to the amount of radiation emitted. So if there's no conduction and there's no convection, you're only dealing with radiative emission and absorption. Well, that has to be true. If the temperature doesn't change, the emission must equal the absorption. And and Stewart wrote this law experimentally in nineteen in eighteen fifty eight. So that's called Stewart's law, the equivalence between absorption and emission under conditions of thermal equilibrium. That's actually the law of Stewart. Now a Got lot it. of people think that's Kirchhoff's law. That's not Kirchhoff's law. So people think, well, that's extended from Kirchhoff. No, it isn't. Kirchhoff's law is something much much more profound. So so what Kirchhoff said was that. If you take an opaque enclosure and it's rigid, now Planck insisted on, on a rigid enclosure and that's important. So you take an opaque enclosure and inside that enclosure at a given temperature, when you have equilibrium, when you're at thermal equilibrium, the radiation will always be of the same nature. So that's Kirchhoff's law. And, and, and what is that radiation? So, so now we need to, now, so the radiation inside is the same as the radiation from the enclosure. The radiation inside is the same as what? Or the radiation from the body with that you you've enclosed is the same as the one that's coming yeah. from the so enclosure if you itself. Put, if you put a body in the box, so you have a box, and if you put a body in it, and they come to thermal equilibrium, there'll, there'll be one radiation inside of it, inside of this system, and that that radiation will be at many frequencies and. Uh, now this is, and 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 the the frequency distribution will depend only on the temperature and is independent of the nature of the walls. This is what Kirchhoff said. Okay, the, and independent of the nature of the walls means that the material that the walls are made of does not matter. Does not the matter. Frequency the rate the 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 right. curve that you get will yeah, be the, the same curve no that matter you get what. Doesn't matter what the material is from, and and. So the thing about Kirchhoff's law, now it's a little complicated, and I, I know for a podcast people say, oh, but maybe some of you guys will, will go ahead and look up Kirchhoff's law and start thinking about it. Yeah, but go pull up Wikipedia. You, you, go look at Wikipedia, but uh, remember that there's errors. So, so Kirchhoff, he said, well, the radiation is independent of the nature of the wall. So that's, was, that was a profound thing. And... And he Why did he say that? Thing, he wanted something called universality. He wanted his law to be to extend to all materials and all objects, provided you meet this condition that you have enclosure and and you don't you don't have conduction, that the radiation will always be black inside. We call it black radiation. So th this field of physics is called black body radiation. And so the the, the nature of the radiation inside the block the box. Uh, the spectrum is, you know, at low frequency it moves with the square of the field, and at high frequency it drops exponentially. And and the peak, the peak, 
where the peak is of this frequency, of this energy distribution as a function of frequency, the peak is uh, dependent on the temperature that you have. There's a constant, and, and that's called Wien's law. And the area of this curve is called Stefan's law. And Stefan showed that you, if you increase the temperature, it, the area will move with the fourth power of the temperature. Okay, so the, the total power emitted will move with the fourth power of the temperature. So that's Stefan's law, and Wien's law is that, and I have little videos on my channel about explaining these laws if, if people want to, to go and look at it. But and it's channel, important oh, because... Oh, hold you, on one second. And that channel is Sky Scholar. Yeah, that channel is Sky Scholar. And, and this is uh, important because you're able to actually look at something and read the temperature. Exactly. You can, and th this is the wonderful thing. You, you should be able to read the temperature. But there's, there's, there's several things that physics was a little bit too easy going on it. They should have been a little more critical. So the first, the, the, one of the things is that, well, Kirchhoff, when he wrote his law, he had no experimental proof. <laughs> mm. So physics is an experimental science. So you need an experimental proof that this is true because he said it was independent of the nature of the walls. And uh, so let's, Take two extremes now. You take a perfect absorber, like graphite, and you look at the radiation inside a graphite box at equilibrium at a certain temperature. Well, the radiation will be black because it'll, it'll, it'll meet what Kirchhoff expected, okay, because graphite's a good absorber. But if you look at a perfect reflector, and this is what we're interested in MRI, right, or in, in microwave technology, I mean, Kirchhoff could never have imagined in 1859 that humanity would have perfect reflectors and, and that we could put coherent radiation inside of it, right? So in lasers, we, we build coherent radiation inside, inside the, the cavity, right? So you can so have... So basically, real quick, a laser is kind of the opposite of this black body where... Exactly. Instead of Kirchhoff the... Kirchhoff was right, lasers would never work. So the, 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 because, so, so we go back now about black body radiation. I mean... So, so the idea is this independence of the nature of the walls, and it's just, it's just, you can't make a law from theory. So after Kirchhoff wrote his theoretical paper, people started finding fault in the paper. Now, to this day, there's no valid theoretical proof that Kirchhoff's law is correct. And it's the only law in physics that was ever made a law based only on mathematics. Well, that doesn't work. You don't get to make a law of physics based on something you did in mathematics. And so no math and so what's worse is that no mathematical proof of Kirchhoff's law has survived. And Planck has tried Planck in his book and I, I have the book, well I have a copy of the book here. Uh, so this this has this is a nice version of this book and uh, the theory of heat radiation by Max Planck, and why the reason I like this this version, it has both the German for people who care about the German and the English. So if you don't like wow. the translation, you could read the German for yourself. But in the first part of the theory of heat radiation, Planck derives Kirchhoff's law. He he has he tries to prove that Kirchhoff's law is correct, and unfortunately, his proof doesn't hold up. So I wrote a paper actually with Steve Crothers. And we show where the errors are in Planck's derivation of Kirchhoff's law. So as a result, there is no, there are no valid derivations of Kirchhoff's law. And Hilbert, I think it was Hilbert who made the point in the early 1900s, he made the point that there's no valid 
theoretical proof of Kirchhoff's law, one does not exist. Well, now, can you, you real quickly just tell us how Kirchhoff's law is being applied today? How, how it, it proves out to be so foundational? Can now, you just in, sort of contextualize it's, it? It's mostly utilized in astronomy. and we, 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 it's, So it's not really utilized outside of astronomy. So let, let's look at the objects. For the temperature we, of stars, right? Yeah, for the temperature of stars. But what I'm saying is that that temperature is not an accurate temperature. It's an apparent temperature. There's a big difference between an apparent temperature and a real one. Got so let's, let's, look at, let's look at the objects that we heat. If, if we heat, so when you talk about black body radiation, a lot of people go back and they think of the forge or, or uh, you know, heating iron and the iron glows red at a certain temperature, right? And, and so the photons are emitted. So we know the temperature of the iron. And uh, now the iron bar will be somewhat it's a tenuously closed black body. It turns out that the human body is a, is a very good black body emitter at, a, I think, at around 11 microns. It's, it's, it's in the infrared. We, we're, we're almost a perfect black body at certain frequencies, right? Hmm. And that's because, of course, we're, we have carbon in, 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 our, in our body. And, you know, I've mentioned this to people before. And when something is a perfect black body at a specific... So uh, it has the it has the correct it has the correct emission at that frequency. So you know we know theoretically at a certain temperature what is the maximum intensity we should get at every frequency, and the human and that body, means that it's an accurate predictor of actual temperature. That's right. So the human body at eleven microns is is actually a, I think it's eleven microns is actually a very good emitter uh, in the infrared, and it's it's, it's very close to perfect it's like 0.99 hmm. close to perfect okay so it's 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 emission coefficient is 0.99 so it's it's almost a perfect black body but if you look in the laboratory you know the story is much much more complicated than what Kirchhoff said so if you look at real black bodies you know for instance when Planck got the black body equation so Kirchhoff made a law he's and the law was e E over A is equal to some function of temperature and frequency. Okay, so the emission divided by the absorption is equal to some function of temperature and frequency. And, and Kirchhoff set A to 1 for black bodies. The absorption is 1. It's a perfect absorber in, for a black body. But then what do you do with the perfect reflector? Well, then, you know, if, for a perfect reflector, both E over A is 0 over 0, but 0 over 0 is not 1. It's undefined, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever you divide, divide by 0, you get something that's undefined. So, so perfect reflectors are outside of the boundary conditions of this model. Well, they are one of the boundaries, and that's one of the problems. So the perfect, ref the perfect emitter is one of the boundaries, like graphite is in certain frequency ranges, is nearly a perfect absorber. And then the perfect reflector polished silver or now they have they have they have reflectors for lasers that have enormous quality factors like 10 to the 11th for the, for the amount of energy stored versus dissipated per cycle right so you store very resonant yeah so it's, it's highly resonant so these things aren't dissipating any energy right so they're not absorbing so so this is a, a very important part of Kirchhoff's law i mean the, the problem in Kirchhoff's law, I mean, this is the most important thing I've ever done in my life, 
to discover that there's a real problem with Kirchhoff's law. I mean, people talk about MRI, that's great. I'm, I'm very delighted I had the privilege to do that. But the consequences of Kirchhoff's error is so great in science, and it affects the entire field of astronomy. In other words, astronomy is built on this law, okay? Both the stars and the microwave background, the monopole of the Big Bang, and, and their belief that they measured the, the temperature of the universe to 2.725 Kelvin. I mean, these things depend on Kirchhoff's law being correct. Now, Kirchhoff, Kirchhoff said that, you know, that, that the radiation was independent of the nature of the walls, but now I just showed you that the, you got the, the perfect absorber, it's got an emissivity of one, and the perfect reflector has got an emissivity of zero. Well, zero divided by zero is undefined, so one of the limits for Kirchhoff and for those who took calculus, you know, if you want to say that it applies over all materials, then both limits must hold, right? If you have a limit that's undefined, well, you have not, you've not, you know, you have an undefined boundary, so you can't say it applies to all materials. It doesn't apply to perfect reflectors. And Planck himself, I think, realized this, although he, he did believe that Kirchhoff was right. And, and what about all the materials in between? Do you well, take error so, with those? So they have different emissivities. And so what I say is, look, if I'm, in, if I'm out and I take an isolated universe and I take a material there and I build a box out of this material magically, I build it out of uh, titanium. Well, the emission spectrum inside the titanium box will, will be the emission spectrum of titanium. It's not going to be a black body. And if it's a perfect reflector, unable to emit, the box is going to be empty. So, so Kirchhoff was just, he was wrong. He, he, and, and this has enormous consequences for physics because Planck, so, so Planck got an equation, right? Planck's equation, it's the equation that describes thermal radiation. That's extremely an important equation. I've never disputed that it's correct for real black bodies. So Planck's equation, you know, sets the, 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 the frequency distribution as a function of, the temperature as a function of frequency, and you get the you get the correct uh, distribution. And this has kind of rescued the ultraviolet catastrophe to some extent. It solves the ultraviolet catastrophe, and and the thing about Planck's equation is it also gives birth to two constants. Planck's constant and Boltzmann's constant are both contained in Planck's equation, right? So it's a very important equation, and I've never disputed that Planck's work was correct relative to the equation for black body radiation, that is right. But Planck went, he wanted more than just black bodies, right? So in the laboratory, we build black bodies. If you go to NIST, they build black bodies of very sophisticated devices to give you the, that perfect spectrum. Well, if Kirchhoff was right, I could use a cardboard box and I should be able to get, I could use any material as long as it's opaque and light cannot go through it and there's no conduction I, then I must get the proper spectrum. And that's not true. We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars at NIST. The, the government spends lots of money building black body standards. And the reason that we have to do it is because Kirchhoff's law is false. So In I, other words, that cardboard should give off the same light as whatever's inside of it. Yeah, it should be perfect overall frequencies, and it's not. So, for instance, and even so graphite... So, are, are the things that are good black bodies... Well, materials whose emission and absorption is closest to one? Yeah, so, so graphite and soot at, at reasonable temperatures are about the closest things we have. 
But and this is why there's this confusion over Stewart's law and Kirchhoff's law because Stewart's law of emission versus absorption being close to one is what gives the accurate black body spectrum off no, of Kirchhoff's no. Stewart, law. Stewart just said that the, the, the emission and absorption have to be equal when you're in thermal equilibrium. He didn't define what, what the emission coefficients were. But does Kirchhoff's law hold best at thermal equilibrium? Kirchhoff's law depends on, on thermal equilibrium. He says you have thermal equilibrium, and when you have thermal equilibrium, when you have temperature equilibrium, the word that he used was temperature equilibrium. When the temperature is at equilibrium, then inside the cavity you'll always have black radiation. And that's just mm -hmm. false. Because if I take a, a, a perfectly reflecting resonator, like we use an MRI, right? If I take a reflector, and it, we, ours aren't perfectly reflecting, but let's assume that we could build a perfectly reflecting uh, cavity. Well, that cavity will reach temperature equilibrium through conduction, right? It can't emit. Its emissivity is zero. So mm -hmm. it, it comes, you know, you set it on a table, and or there, it'll reach the temperature of the room through, uh, you know, particles that hit it in the air or conduction with something else. So I have a, a little paper written, it's called The Box in the Box, <laughs> and this actually takes, it takes two boxes. It takes a graphite box on the outside, and inside I put a perfect reflector, okay? And so it's emissivity, the, the inside box has, has an emissivity of zero. And then what I do is I take the whole thing and I, I drop it in the, and, and the inside box, the lid is open. Inside, the, there's a big box, and the little box, I open the lid. And then I drop the whole thing in liquid nitrogen or liquid helium. And so now the, we'll assume that the, the perfect emitter is now giving us photons, giving us a 4 Kelvin temperature, right? So now I close, magically, I close the inside box. And so what happens is now, after I close the box, it's sealed, right? And it contains 4 Kelvin photons inside of it. And then I take the whole thing and I take it out of the helium and I bring it up to room temperature. Well, the outside box will now produce a, a, 300, a 300 Kelvin photon distribution. But inside the little box, the temperature of the little box, the wall, will still be 300. So it's at thermal equilibrium. It, it, it came up to temperature, right? But inside you'll have only 4 Kelvin photons. And that shows that Kirchhoff is wrong. So... And the, there's other things you could look at, the boxes side by side. I had several things, but the box in the box paper is one of the more elegant ones for people to see that it doesn't make sense. And but the bottom line is that the material that you're reading, the structure of that material really factors into the temperature. Exactly. That you're the structure is extremely important, and Planck didn't want that. He wanted it to be independent of the nature of the walls because that made... That brought something called universality to physics. So the things that are called Planck length, Planck time, Planck temperature, these things come from universality, from Kirchhoff being right. So physics believes that there's, there's a Planck length, the, the smallest unit of length in the universe. I mean, cosmologists use it all the time. They right. really depend on this Planck length. Now, the only way that it, Planck length actually exists is if Kirchhoff's law is right. If wow, Kirchhoff's law is wrong, then there's no such thing as Planck length, Planck time. It's just, I mean, it's not fundamental. You could calculate a Planck length, 
but it has no meaning. I mean, mm. it's just a number, like a yard is a number or a meter is a number. It doesn't mean anything. Planck length is no different than a meter or a yard. It has, it has no more significance than that in physics. But the cosmology, Planck length is something fundamental. They use it all the time. And so when you collapse Kirchhoff's law, they lose Planck length and Planck time. Physics loses universality. And this is like a death blow to astronomy. It's a, it's a terrible thing to lose Kirchhoff's law. So that's why they'll try to fight tooth and nail for it. But I'm saying no, us MRI scientists, we have, perf we have nearly perfect resonators and we want to have resonators and we, so we can have cavities and we could put objects inside cavities in EPR, electron paramagnetic resonance. They use, they use cavities all the time. In microwave technology, we use cavities all the time. In lasers, we use cavities all the time. And those cavities aren't black. We don't want them to be black. So, right. the, the, so if everything was black, all these technologies wouldn't work, right? Because things, so you'd get, the, so what happens, a real black body, and then this is the thing that Kirchhoff and Planck never brought to the science, which I'm trying to tell people, real black bodies on the way to equilibrium do work. So they can work, they're doing work on the radiation. So radiation is coming in, it's hitting the black body, and, and th when it hits the wall, the wall, the, the lattice in the wall oscillates and it put, puts out photons that corresponds to its temperature. So it transforms the incoming radiation into a temperature distribution corresponding to the, to the temperature of the wall. So eventually, And then that re-emits. And it's re-emitting. So a real black body does work. And, and Planck never used the word work at all in, his, in any of his writings. He, he wasn't thinking about... The fact that a black body on the way to equilibrium, it's doing work, but, but a perfect reflector can never do work. You don't want it to work on the radiation. You want the radiation to come and hit the wall and reflect off of it because you want it to, be, to build a standing wave. So a perfect reflector can't do work. And, and, so in, in and again, this is a case of technologists kind of being separate from the people that are studying the stars. Yeah, so, so there's a, there was a disconnect. People, people assumed that Kirchhoff's law was right, and then they went ahead and used it. And then they went very far in astronomy. And then I came along in 2002 and said, no, 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 no. You, you, so at first, I actually thought Kirchhoff was right. So if you look at the New York Times, if we go back and read this New York Times article, you'll see that in that article, I actually, in, in 2002, I thought that Kirchhoff was right. Hmm. But that but that the astronomers were still in trouble because they violated Kirchhoff's law. Because Kirchhoff's law requires thermal equilibrium with a rigid, opaque enclosure. Well, the sun is not, it's not rigid. I mean, it's got convection currents. You cannot take its temperature. So, mm. so we, we can talk about this more, but Planck actually wrote about this. It actually, uh, it's in this book. And I, I, and I guess since we covered it, since we're talking about it now, I'll just read and I have to take off my glasses to read because I'm getting old. But uh, in section, I, I, I remember the section now. I, I did look it up here at some so point. So just to tell everybody, we're definitely planning on doing another podcast here about the sun itself. Because Pierre-Marie has some really cool ideas about what's happening. And then right. also about the cosmic microwave background radiation. Right. Yes. Well, yeah, we, hopefully we get to do both. But, but Max Planck actually... Uh, he talked about, uh, let's, let's see, where, uh, now I won't, know, I won't be able to find it. 
And if I might add just another thing. But he actually said, you know, Planck actually said that you you can't, and and I'll find it for the next, for the next lecture, but Planck actually said you can't measure the temperature of the sun using black body radiation. It's, it's not a property of the sun. It's a property of the rays. And so what, what was Planck realizing? Well, the sun has convection currents. And if you've got convection currents, I mean, when you read about black body radiation, they want a rigid enclosure. Well, the sun is not in a rigid, opaque enclosure, right? It's got convection currents, and there's energy in, that, in, that, in those convection currents, and that energy is not available for thermal emission. So the, the spectrum that we get from the sun is an apparent temperature. It's not a real temperature. And, and so it, it tells you something about the lattice, the vibrational lattice on the sun. It doesn't tell you the real temperature the real amount of energy that there is in the photosphere. So this is a major error in astronomy, and it's coming because of Kirchhoff's law. They believe that if they see a, if they see a spectrum and it's a thermal spectrum, they assume it's a black body spectrum. But that's an error. You can't do that. You, you only get to say it's a black body spectrum if you have a known solid or, or the sample that you have is within a rigid enclosure. And this was the problem for Penzias and Wilson. They set a so can I just clarify, they're sort of treating the sun like it's a ball of gas inside of a, a black body skin. Right. And it, it's a gas. And if they, it's not a gas, but if, if, it, if it was a gaseous plasma, it, 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 a gaseous plasma can never produce such a spectrum. It just can't do it. I mean, gas pla- gaseous plasmas don't give black bodies. And, but if and, they did, they would have to be contained within a skin that was a hard yes. Uh, lattice. Yeah. So in the New York Times article, what I, what I say is that Kirchhoff's law is right. Because, of course, at that time in my life, I thought I, I didn't have any cause to question Kirchhoff's law. But I'm saying, hey, you guys, if Kirchhoff's law is right, it requires a, a, an enclosure which is, uh, which is rigid. And the sun's not in a rigid enclosure. You're in violation of Kirchhoff's law. So you're out of luck. You can't, the, the sun is, cannot be a gas. Now, to make things worse, as I studied, then I learned that, oh my gosh, it's even worse than this because now Kirchhoff's law is not even valid. So you, you guys are done. I mean, there's, there's no redeeming this. So this is true both for the, the Big Bang and the microwave background. It's a huge, huge problem for astronomy. It's also true for the, 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 the Hawking radiation off a black hole. The, the Hawking radiation assumes that Kirchhoff's law is valid. It's, it's, Hawking doesn't have his radiation because he doesn't have a lattice. So it, it just all of this stuff is just going to collapse. So, so it, it has, there are big implications here. And the, the MRI people and the engineers, the people who are actually doing work with cavities, they know that I have resonant cavities, and guess what? We don't want them to do work. And when we build black bodies, we spend a lot of money building them to make specialized black bodies. And if Kirchhoff was right, we should be all saving our money and, and we could build black bodies very easily. So this is a really fundamental thing about black body radiation, you know, that, that Kirchhoff conceived it. He wrote a law about it. He used only mathematics. And there's, there's no experimental proof. And, and people say, well, okay, well, they, oh, yeah, this is, or you talk to astronomers and they'll tell you, oh, this is well established. Well, actually, they haven't done their homework because it's not, it's not established at all. I'm a spectroscopist. They're a spectroscopist. I know the field of spectroscopy. And the, you will not find black body spectra coming from gases. That's not, that's not correct. 
And so what they say is, well, it's optically opaque. It's, it's a very thick gas, and that's why it behaves as a black body. Well, this is just a creation of their pencil. It, 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 those types of gases don't exist. I mean, we see nebula that give you sharp lines in the, in, in the, in, uh, in the galaxies. We, we can see nebula, and, and they give you sharp spectra. And so this is just fantasy on their part. And, and so you can do anything you want with a pencil, but, but physics works for what happens in the, in the laboratory. So when I wrote, actually, we could talk about the, in this. I just want to add a piece of context to this, too, so people understand how this kind of slips between the goalie's legs a little bit. When Planck formalized these laws, this was the first time that the photon had been quantized, if I, if I have this history correct. And I well, think I, there's two things. There's, there's Planck that, that, that quantized it within... He, he first introduced the quantum of action, and he was first. And then, Planck, and then Albert Einstein came with the photoelectric effect, and that was a, one of his great works. Right. That so this was emotion. a huge moment, and, and it was a very opportunistic moment for things to kind of slip by. Right. And, and so, so what happens for Planck is he believes in Kirchhoff's law, and, and because he does, he, he comes up with this concept of universality, that we have Planck length and mass and time and, and temperature. And, and all this stuff is invalid because there's, no, there's nothing special about these quantities. They're just, uh, Planck said that, you know, that the, the Planck length will be, if you were like you guys, aliens, you'd, you'd also have the Planck length and, and humans will have it. And every species in the universe will have Planck length, Planck time, Planck, Planck temperature. And that's what Planck really wanted. So people who don't understand thermal radiation, they think, well, the triumph of Max Planck is Planck's equation. That's not what Planck thought the triumph was. The triumph for Max Planck was universality, that now I have this equation and, and the constant H and K, they're universal. And they, they'll be discovered by everybody. And that's just not true. Mm. And, and, and that's because real materials exist and Kirchhoff's law is false. And, and so in this, I try to tell you, all of astronomy is built on Kirchhoff's law. And, and as a spectroscopist, I'm saying, sorry, boys, but this doesn't work. This, the boys and girls nowadays, in the old days, actually, there were a lot of famous women astronomers, you should know, you, you know, that didn't quite get their credit. Uh, and, that's, I, and I give credit to them in some of my papers and stuff. But anyhow, so... The so this universality was an idealization, essentially, and it was built on other idealizations. Right. Well, I, this is an interesting is, thing is because this was something that physics and science in general was really obsessed with. Yes. The it, formulation of something that would allow people to reach the end of science. We right. have discovered a law, and it will always be a law. Right. And it's this, beautiful this was, and simple this, and... Yeah, this was the this was the key thing for Max Planck, and in, and regrettably, you know, his equation will hold in black bodies, but but Kirchhoff's law is false, so Planck's reach for universality collapses. And now, what what am I trying? To, why is it that we're going there? And I, I tried to, uh, you know, we we try to talk about real black bodies can do work. But there's something fundamental about Planck's equation that people are also missing. And, and now I need to kind of talk as a spectroscopist. Mm. So, you know, if we do spectra, 
like for instance, maybe for people who, who took freshman chemistry, they remember the Bohr atom, for instance, and, and the electrons can, can undergo transitions from, from one shell to another, right? So the electron is undergoing a transition. And so now in spectra, all spectroscopic methods, not just NMR, all methods, okay? There's, there's always five things that are common to spectroscopic methods. And this is extremely important because it, it shows you something fundamental which is missing with Planck's equation. So Planck's treatment of black body radiation. So for instance, for, for the Lyman lines in the UV, so in ultraviolet we have Lyman lines, right? And there are five things that you could think of that are required to get a Lyman line. The first thing is you have to have a setting. And for the Lyman line, the setting is the hydrogen atom. This, you get a Lyman line in the hydrogen atom. And then you have to have energy levels. And, and that's the second thing that you need in spectroscopy. So the first thing in spectroscopy, you always need a setting. The second thing you need in spectroscopy, you always need energy levels. By so, setting, do you just mean an actor that is ca that you're you looking need to, at? You need to tell me what the setting is. I mean, what are we talking about, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. so, we, so for Lyman lines, we're talking about hydrogen. That's the setting. If you're like, look at the like, physical, what what's doing? the physical object that you're starting with? Yeah, you want to talk about what is the physical constraint. So in NMR, the physical constraint or the setting is the hydrogen atom in a magnetic field. That's the setting in NMR. Got for, it. For, for, for if you're doing proton NMR, okay? So for the Lyman line, it's the hydrogen atom is the setting. And then the next thing is, what are the energy levels? So these things are common to all spectroscopic methods. So what are the energy levels? So in, for the Lyman lines, it's the electronic energy levels. This is what we're, we're, the electron is going from one energy level to another, right? And because without that, you don't have any light. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't get any light. So, so number three is what is the transition species? So the transition species is the electron for the Lyman line. So we have a setting, we have energy levels, we have a transition species. Which is what is what's actually moving what or is, changing what is causing in the, the light to be formed. There's something that's causing the light. And then number four is the the light itself. There's an absorption or emission of a photon, and and that's the Lyman line, right? And then there's a formula, finally, that, that, that is associated with it. And, and for Lyman, it's the Rydberg formula, right? It's 1 divided by the wavelength is the Rydberg constant. And then in brackets, 1 divided by n1 squared minus 1 divided by n2 squared. That's the Rydberg formula for the Lyman line. So, so every spectroscopic method always has these five things. A setting, energy levels, a transition species, the emission and absorption of a photon and an equation. So in NMR or MRI, let's say, okay, we have five things too. So if you want to do NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance on a proton, well, what's the setting? It's a hydrogen atom placed in a magnetic field. And what is the energy levels? It's the spin energy levels. And what is the transition species? It's the nuclear spin. And what do you observe? The NMR line. And what is the equation that we care about? It's the Lamar equation. Right, that the frequency is the gyromagnetic ratio times the V field. So every spectroscopic technique has these five things, except black body radiation. In hmm. black body radiation, we don't know the setting, we don't know the energy levels, and we don't know the transition species. We just know the light and we have Planck's equation. But it's completely, because of Kirchhoff's law, 
The first three have not been answered. I always call that the real black hole in physics. Mm -hmm. So the, the real black hole in physics is that physicists have never told us what is the setting that you need for black body radiation, what is the energy levels, and what are the transition species. So what I'm saying in my, in my papers, I've, I've said, look, the setting is the, is the vibrational lattice. You need a lattice. If you want a black body spectrum, you better have a lattice. And, and the, the graphite lattice, which, which is hexagonal planar, is what you require, is the thing, graphite and soot closely approach what is the ideal lattice. And so since the sun is, behave, is giving us a good thermal spectrum, I said, it's not just I say the sun has a lattice, but it, it, has to be, uh, it has to be the proper lattice, the hexagonal planar lattice. And then, so what's the setting? So for Planck, his setting, he requires a lattice. It's not independent of the nature of the walls. It's, there's no such thing as, you know, that the perfect reflectors work. This is just nonsense. And people have tried to argue, well, it's a second law violation. If, if, if the perfect reflector doesn't have black body radiation in it, you're violating the second law. This is nonsense. The reason that you're violating the second law is because you didn't include, you, pre you prevented the perfect resonator from having conduction. So you, you move into an artificial world that you say, this thing cannot have conduction. It's a perfect reflector, but it, we deprive it of its conduction. And then we say, and so if it's not filled with black body radiation, it's a violation of the second law. Well, this is nonsense because the perfect reflectors have conduction. You can't take it away from it. So, so that's well, how they reach this is fascinating because it's a problem we see often in physics, which is that things get really confusing if you don't start with a physical object. You call right. this the setting, but you got to start with, you got to talk about something. I mean, yeah, what is so physics if not studying physical objects? Right. So people try to say, well, you know, no, no, Pierre can't be right because it's a second law violation. Sorry, boys. It's not a second law violation because you have moved the perfect reflector out of physical reality by preventing it from having conduction, which is how it reaches thermal equilibrium, right? A, a, a silver box, which cannot produce a single photon, reaches thermal equi temperature equilibrium through conduction. Don't tell me that you're going to have a perfect reflector and then it's not going to have conduction. So silver, which has a very good reflector, is also one of the best conductors. Okay, so that's, that's really important that these things, they move together. So you don't have a second law violation. Permit conduction to reach the, 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 that the silver box will reach thermal equilibrium, temperature equilibrium through conduction. There's no second law violation. So this is, this is a convenient, like hand-waving things where the astronomers say, well, if, if Pierre's right, it's a second law violation. No, it's not. It's you guys have a, a violation of the fundamental principles of physics. So you need these things, you know, you need a setting, energy levels, a transition species, so, and, and uh, you, you need the production of a photon and the equation. And Planck doesn't give us the first three. So I try to tell you, the first one is the setting, is the lattice. And the energy levels are going to be the vibrational energy levels of that lattice. And the transition species are the nuclei as they're vibrating in, in that media. And then you have the emission of light. Which, which comes from the vibration of nuclei inside that lattice, and then finally you have the equation. So you have, so, so what I'm saying to physics is, look, you know, once you link a physical cause to the production of a thermal photon and you say, well, a lattice is required, right? So now I'm just saying a lattice is required. Well, that means that the sun has a lattice because it's got a thermal spectrum. It, it has a lattice. 
And so this is the, the huge transition in astronomy that the sun has a lattice and this means that it's the collapse of modern astronomy. I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple Well, hopefully as it's a rebirth, not a collapse. Yeah, it's, it's a rebirth. And I, I have, of course, you know, people talk about, well, this is like a revolution. I don't like revolutions. Revolutions, they, you know, whenever you have revolutions, you, you have people that die. <laughs> this There's is a lot good. of guillotining. <laughs> so I, I prefer a transition, you know, that people come to re recognize that, oh, my gosh, we have a real problem. And, and once they realize that they have a problem, then science gets to move in an exciting new direction, the condensed yeah. nature of the stars. So it's, it's, it's quite important uh, that they realize it. So I think that there's two lessons from my work that I, I want to leave with today. The first is that black bodies do work on their way to thermal equilibrium, okay? And perfect reflectors cannot do work, okay? Mm -hmm. And then... The second is that Planck's equation remains unlinked to the physical world. So physics must assign a setting, energy levels, and a transition species like exists in every other process in spectroscopy. Planck doesn't get, it's a spectroscopic process, so he doesn't get to be outside of spectroscopy. And as a spectroscopist, I can complain. I can say, no, 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 no. <laughs> we, now you guys have been caught and, and uh, you have to adhere to the rules of spectroscopy as they are in, in in other areas of physics, chemistry, and medicine, right? So chemists, I mean, when a chemist is a, is a spectroscopist and he tells a cosmologist, well, look, guys, there's certain rules in, in spectroscopy and you guys have to pay attention to them. They don't get to say, well, you're not a cosmologist or you're not an astronomer, but it's irrelevant. You guys are using our techniques developed in the laboratory by chemists and by physicists, so you have to follow the rules and you have to follow what, what, what nature is telling us here on Earth. So this is a quite important that Planck is not linked to the physical world. And, and when Planck's equation gets linked to the physical world, this will be a massive, massive transformation in physics because not only does this tell us that the stars have a lattice, they have a, a vibrational lattice, but the other thing is that the Big Bang never produced the microwave background. Is the microwave background has to ha come from something that has the proper lattice. And, and as a teaser for that, that's why I said it has to come from the oceans and the hydrogen bond in the oceans. And, and we will talk about that in a later episode. But I think for today, I think we covered, we covered quite a bit on black body radiation and the, and the take-home lesson that Kirchhoff's law has no experimental proof and, and black bodies can do work and Planck's equation is not linked. And if you guys go to Sky Scholar, if people are interested, they can go to Sky Scholar. And, and uh, when you go through Sky Scholar, you'll see, well, a lot of people are attacking me, and that's totally fine. If somebody catches something that's wrong, I will correct. But I will stand by what I say. You know, just because somebody's complaining and says, Dr. Robitaille is not right, and they don't, they don't make a sound argument, I don't have to spend my life answering all the comments on YouTube. I have a life, I have wife, I have a wife, I have children, and I'm not going to spend my time arguing with people all over the world. When I make a video, I make it, it stays there, and if there's, I read comments, but I don't answer them, and, uh, and the reason why this is, I guess I can explain it on your channel, why doesn't Robitaille answer comments on his YouTube channel? And the reason is, is that I have a son who's in medical school, and he actually has the channel, it's, it's his channel. I don't even have the password to it. And uh, that was a condition. He's the one that 
got Sky Scholar started. And when he started it, he said, Dad, there's one condition. You don't get to answer comments because I want you to have a life. So <laughs> That's people, a smart kid. And, You'll and never do anything said, else. And he said people will be, some people will be venomous. And you, you will see that on Sky Scholar. You'll see lots of venomous comments. And it's completely irrelevant. I mean, the, the level of science involved here is at the highest levels. And people need to understand that, that the problems are quite complicated. And it's, it's Sky Scholar is to help the lay people understand that there's a problem. And then to help people that, that know science that can, that can follow it further, right? There's all kinds of people looking at Sky Scholar. I mean, there's physicists, there's people think, and this gets back to what I said before, just because, you know, you see some people that are upset. There's a lot of people that are thinking as well. That's why Sky Scholar is produced. There's people that are thinking about it and they don't, they don't voice their opinion. They're just, okay, there's a problem. We're starting to realize there's a problem. And next time we could talk about the sun in greater detail and you'll see that the astronomers have really, they've got problems with the sun. There's no question about that. So, you Wonderful. know, I think, I think it's, uh, you've given me a nice opportunity to, to, to do something that I don't do on Sky Scholar, and that's just to speak in general in a relaxed, you know, this is kind of a relaxed setting, speaking to aliens. So, yeah. <laughs> And to lay out relaxed. all of the connections in this long form, because the videos on Sky Scholar are generally brief. You know, you're not going, you, you don't necessarily go for an hour. Or right. talk about how you came up with the ideas. And I think it's really important, especially for young scientists, to understand how the work gets done. Yeah, there's, right. a, there's a process of thinking about things that is right. important to know. And, and, and if you're going to make progress in science, this is one thing I adv advise young people. Know your field. In other words, read the classic papers, right? So science advances and, and people don't realize the importance of just reading. And I mean, I read, I've read thousands and thousands of pages in my life and uh, I've worked on the microwave background and, and when I read those papers, some of them I've, I've read them 13 times because I, I put my initial on the paper each time I read it and, and by the time I produce a paper on it, I've read that particular paper 13 times. So I, well. when I, when I, the importance of reading and studying, not just the current literature, but you have to know your field. You have to know the history. If you're going to be a spectroscopist, know the history of spectroscopy. How did it start? And if you're going to be an astronomer, you better know the history of how the sun became a gas and so on. And uh, we can talk about that next time how the sun became a gas and uh, how we got into this mess. So words of wisdom. Thank right. you so much. Thanks Thank you, for uh, hosting me. All right. It's we'll be pleasure. back with more on the sun next time. Yep. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Right. Bye. Bye.